these eight weeks, humbly seeking the leading of God, we have been attempting to speak into this unique season in which we find ourselves. And at all, we've tried to keep the focus upon him. We looked at Isaiah 40 and the reality of God's reigning over all things, reminding ourselves that God has got this. If you remember, we compared the virus to the boot flake and God to El Capitan. That very first week online, we committed to taking Psalm 11, 3-4 as our foundational scripture for the duration of the virus, where David wrote this, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. We looked more deeply into the God that we love and worship and follow, a God who is our good, good shepherd, in Psalm 23, and our good, good Father in the Lord's Prayer. That He is a God who offers us provision, piloting, His presence, protection, plenty, pursuit, and a permanent relationship. That He is a God who is personal and pure, preeminent and powerful, a God who provides, pardons, and protects. We spent Easter affirming the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and how that objectively demonstrates to us that Jesus truly is king and that he and nothing else will have the last word. Not evil, not suffering, not disease, not even death. That even though we have been in quarantine, our resurrected Lord Jesus has never been in quarantine. We then looked at the need in this season more than ever to work on taking up some some key spiritual practices that bring us near to God so that He can shape us into the kind of people He wants us to be. We did so by spending three weeks looking at our emotions in light of God, our El Capitan. First, if you remember, we looked at the need to lament to bring the inner reality of our true selves, emotions and all, before Him, expressing to Him what is within us, but always turning to Him as the greater reality, turning to Him in loving trust, knowing that our emotions are the weather, that they're ever-changing, but that He alone is the mountain, that He alone is the one who is ever-present, unchanging, that He's rock-solid. Then we talked about the ways in which God uses difficulty and pressure, uses times like this as a refining fire in our lives, showing us through our emotional reactions and the resulting attitudes, words, and behaviors, especially in the context of family. There he is in our hearts where he is desiring to be at work. Again, with the end goal of that refining process being to get a precious metal into its purest form, so that it could be formed into something that was either useful or beautiful, or best of all, both. And how that God is likely using this time to purify us through hammering and heat in order to reveal and remove impurities, to make us more pliable, so that through it all we can ultimately be patterned after Him, formed and fashioned more into the likeness of Jesus as a person who is both useful and beautiful to him. And finally, last week, we talked about the fact that confusion and uncertainty were likely a large part of the cocktail of these ill-defined emotions we're feeling right now. 
we talked about how that the need to be in control was one of the greatest enemies of the spiritual life and of us being formed into the image of Jesus. So we talked about intentionally growing in the discipline of holy uncertainty, intentionally seeking to grow into greater levels of uncertainty tolerance. By the way, James 3.1 says you should never seek to be a teacher. And I think one of the reasons is, is that anytime you talk about a topic, God puts you in life experiences to make you sure you're learning to live into the reality of which he speaks, or which you speak. Last Sunday, after our online service was finished, and as we launched into the rest of our Mother's Day, moving into all the plans we had made to make it a special day for Pat, the unexpected happened. Most everything we planned hit a snag. Nothing worked as we envisioned it. Nothing. Our 2020 Mother's Day was a day full of, un, of, holy, of holy uncertainty. Long delays, flat tires, poison oak, don't ask. But we survived. And we made it through the day with laughter and love and joy and peace. It was a good day. In all of this, we've been seeking to become a community of faith, hope, and love. A community of people who are being formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus by learning to exhibit greater degrees of love, joy, and peace, even in the midst of great difficulty and great uncertainty. People who embrace holy uncertainty as a lifestyle. And in all of this, we've been seeking, we've been seeking that we, as God's people, as followers of Jesus, would be the center of a non-anxious presence in the midst of all the cultural fear and anxiety. That's been something we've been talking about from the very beginning, from March 15th. Now, last week we looked at Daniel as a model of a life profoundly free of control and a life lived well with a deep sense of holy uncertainty. We looked at three things about his life, if you remember. One was his deep trust in God's sovereignty. Two, that he had a life rooted in spiritual rhythms and practices, seeking God's presence. And three, that he had a life deeply and intimately connected in a close-knit community of spiritual friends. The second one being a life rooted in spiritual rhythms and practices, seeking God's presence. We talked about the crucial importance of living in regular communion with the Father through a rhythm of life that was marked by spiritual practices that helped me to be present to him and to connect with him. Though I don't do it all perfectly, I mean, though I don't do it perfectly um, at all, trust me, over the years, I've increasingly learned the importance of intentionally built-in rhythms that provide structure for my spiritual practices. And I'm going to give you an example in a minute. But we see that in Daniel's life. As we learned last week, he was a man who spent time in God's Word and who deeply valued prayer, keeping a three times a day rhythm that sustained that life of prayer. So one of the key practices that we can build into the rhythm of our lives is prayer, daily prayer. I think we all know the importance of prayer. At least we hear about it, and I think we feel that it's important. But for some reason, it's one of the hardest disciplines. 
Some of the giants of the faith have written of their disappointment with their prayer life. Perhaps some of that comes out of our need to be in control and uh, get at her and get her done, right? This is especially, I think, true now more than ever. Because without a doubt, our culture really emphasizes doing over being. But I want to remind us, and I want to remind myself, that who you are is way more important than what you do. As Peter Scazzaro says, God's invitation is to be before you do, so that what you do flows from your being. But we're not very good at just being. At least I'm not. And that's one of the great things about prayer, I think, in that in doing it, we may not feel like we're really getting much done. And, for if, it's, and if it's true that our need to control is one of the greatest impediment, impe- impediments to our growth, if the need to control is one of the greatest impediments to my own growth, then prayer is a great chance to practice not controlling through doing. Does that make sense? By sitting quietly and contentedly at the feet of the only one who truly is in control. So I want to call us to take advantage of what is left of this season to drill down into the practice of prayer. I want to first cast a vision for the importance of prayer and then give you some practical prayer practices. First, let me attempt to cast a vision for the necessity of prayer. First, prayer is essential to a life of intimacy with God. Let me make the importance of prayer as personal and as practical as I can. We were created for a relationship with God. Talk about that all the time. And everything we do ought to be rooted in that reality. Now, think about your human relationships. And I really challenge you, when you think about God, to think about Him in terms of normal relationships. If you want to grow in intimacy, in knowing someone, in being known by them, in a growing sense of vulnerability and trust, in enjoying being with that person. It takes touches, and touches take time. It takes touches, and touches take time. And touches and time both take intentionality. Think about it. If I want to grow in intimacy with my wife or children, I must intentionally create the time, the space where I can touch them relationally, so to speak. And what are some of those touches that help us to know a person? To come to trust a person, to enjoy a person, to have a true relational intimacy with a person. To me, one of them is listening, hearing about them, learning about them, the way they think, what they value, their concerns, their life story, what matters to them. And where is the best place to listen to God, to hear about Him, to learn about Him, to learn the way that He thinks, what He values, what concerns Him most, about His story, and about what matters to Him. Where's the best place than the Word of God? The place where God has chosen to give us the most detailed and specific revelation about Himself. Another way to listen to God is what's called listening prayer, but that's for another day. So, Another form of touch, or a second form of touch, is in giving. 
showing our love and affection by sacrificially giving of ourselves to the other person in loving service and in giving them gifts and sacrificing even my finances to show them my love. Parents understand this. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has said that as of the beginning of this year, the average cost of raising a child from birth through age 17, those of you with newborns or newborns coming, take a deep swallow. In the urban Midwest, it's $227,400. That's a little over a quarter of a million dollars. But if you're a loving parent, you know that every dollar, every cent of that, comes from a deep fountain of sacrificial love welling up from deep within the heart. Out of love, God is overflowing in generosity toward us. And out of love, we are generous back toward Him, leveraging and giving our resources for His purposes. Because that's what a loving relationship looks like. <coughs> Excuse me. I could go on for a while, but we'll only mention one other form of relational touch talking. With deep vulnerability, sharing ourselves and our lives with the other person, sharing my story through conversation, through my talking, sharing what I think about, what I value, what my concerns are, sharing my story, what matters to me, my fears and joys, my disappointments, my sorrows and failings. Talking to someone I love about my life and theirs, that is, in its essence, what prayer is. It's just talking to God, somebody that I love about my life, wanting to know more about Him. It's communing with God. That's what prayer is. It is growing in our intimacy with Him. Secondly, we know that prayer is essential, not just to develop a life of intimacy with God, but it's essential because a life of prayerful communion with the Father, it's what Jesus modeled for us. We talked about it in our February series on the rhythm of Jesus' life. He regularly spent time in solitude, in time with the Father, seeking Him, communing with Him, hearing from Him, speaking to Him. It was His first priority. In the midst of so much that He had to do, He intentionally took daily time to simply be with the Father in prayer. As you remember, Luke 5.16 said that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And he longed for this type of life for his followers. That's why in Mark 6, 31 and 32, we see him training his followers in that same rhythm. That's why he said in Mark eleven seventeen 17, that my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Because he knew that time spent with the father alone was foundational to everything else they did with each other and for him. And where a master is, there his servant will also be. For the servant is no greater than the master. If the incarnate Son of God needed that rhythm and that practice of prayer as a part of his ongoing communion with the Father, so do we. It's all a part of the abiding life that Jesus called us to. Just as, just as Jesus abided in the Father's love, John 14, 10, through, among other things, prayer, we too abide in his love ever dependent upon Him, ever seeking an attentive and responsive life to Him. And all that's just a way to say that to live in the white life, in the, to live in the way of Jesus, is to live a life 
of prayer. That's why Richard Foster says, For those explorers on the frontiers of faith, prayer was no little habit tacked onto the periphery of their lives. It was their lives. So, prayer is essential in developing intimacy with God. It's essential in living in the way of Jesus and following His model. And finally, prayer is essential because it's the source of power behind all we do. I'm not sure if we understand how significant prayer really is. I know that I am convinced that I don't. For if I were fully convinced, I'm convinced I would pray more. But the effects of prayer are real. The reality is that God responds to our prayers, and that our prayers have influence beyond the world that's visible to our eyes. Our prayers actually setting into motion things in the unseen realm. That's why James wrote, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Last week, we looked at the life of Daniel. And in chapter 9, we, I referenced uh, one of his prayers. And towards the end of that prayer, he says this in that prayer. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. And that's in verse 17. Then he adds this in verses 21 to 23. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel the man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Now, my topic today isn't on what is called the efficacy of prayer, meaning, does it really work? Does God really hear and answer? Do my prayers really affect the way God does things? That's not my topic for today. For today, I simply want to emphasize the power of prayer, which I guess is a way of saying that it is effective. Many have commented on the power of prayer. As we engage against the spiritual forces of darkness, which I remind you of Paul's words that our enemy is not flesh and blood, and as we storm the gates of hell, Prayer is one of our greatest weapons. In Ephesians 6, Paul outlines the armor we're to wear, so to speak, so we can stand up against Satan, the enemy of our soul. The first five pieces are all defensive or protective in nature. At the end, Paul turns to the offensive, and he mentions two things. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer in Ephesians 6.18. There he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Here's the reality. Prayer is the power behind all kingdom work, behind all we do to advance the kingdom of God. That's why Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a 19th century British preacher who stands behind me to my right and to your left, called prayer, and his church's prayer gatherings as the boiler room. Now, for some of my generation, the words boiler room may conjure up visions of noisy, slightly creepy back-of-the-basement rooms or a back-of-the-basement room in our 1970s elementary school where the custodian kept some of his supplies. But not to Spurgeon. Boiler rooms provided power for everything, from vast machines in factories to household heating systems. For Spurgeon, steam was the primary power source of the day, and the boilers were the primary source of steam. 
And again, those boiler rooms are what provided um, the power for everything, everything in their culture. In the same way, Spurgeon believed that prayer was the spiritual power that lay behind the effectiveness of his ministry. To him, his church's prayer ministry was the underground powerhouse that fueled the life of everything in his church. The boiler room of prayer is what provides the prayer behind all that we do, too, not just Charles Spurgeon. Though we might, may not always practice it well, we are convinced that prayer in the life of the believer and in the life of the church comes first and second and third. Because when the church prays, God moves. And that's why Henry Nouwen said, prayer is the beginning and the end, the source and the fruit, the core and the content. Or why, to paraphrase him, Oswald Chambers said, prayer is not the beginning of the work, it is the work. A praying church is a church that's near to God's heart. So if we want access to the very heartbeat of God, we need to be a people of prayer. So, we're wanting to begin an emphasis on the spiritual practice of prayer at 12. I would like to see it become a greater part of my life, and we would like to see it become a greater part of the church's life. So during this time, we will be calling all of us to a greater emphasis upon prayer in our personal as well as our corporate life as a church family. In a desire to move us to become a people more dependent upon prayer, we're going to spend several weeks, how many right now, I don't know, but several weeks focusing on the spiritual practice of prayer. Over the next few weeks, we will attempt to cast a, a heart-grabbing vision of prayer. That's my goal, a heart-grabbing vision of prayer, as well as offer a weekly tool to help you practically implement prayer more deeply into your own life. And in a minute, I'll tell you about an initiative we're taking. But first, a practical tool. I want to challenge you this week to weekly commit for, this, for the next period of time, to commit to a single, simple, daily practice. I would like to ask you to make it a part of your morning rhythm. And the practice is this. Kneeling prayer before phone. Kneeling prayer before phone. I encourage you, over the course of the next several weeks, to begin the regular rhythm of your day with prayer. Not your phone, not a shower, not breakfast, but prayer. It is so easy to rise to your phone's alarm clock and first thing, check your email or text messages or the day's news or the sports headlines. Trust me, I know. So I encourage you to go to bed without your phone nearby. Perhaps go to Walmart and buy an old-fashioned alarm clock. There really is such a thing to, uh, to the younger generation. When your alarm goes off, and after you've hit that snooze button five or six times, roll out of bed and kneel and pray. It's the first thing you do each morning. It doesn't have to be long, but I especially encourage you to use that prayer before phone time to yield your life to God, to surrender yourself to Him, to proclaim your desire to die to yourself that day, to live for Him, to live for His purposes. Give your day to Him. Express to Him your desire to be with open hands in accepting all that He allows into your life that day. Tell Him that you long to live the day embracing holy uncertainty, 
not knowing, because none of us do, what is truly coming your way, but wanting to live well into the day. And in doing this kneeling prayer before phone, don't shortchange the importance of physically kneeling. God created us as a unity of body and spirit, and often one of the ways to take hold of the mind and the spirit is to take hold of the body. The habits, you know, the habits that we engage in in those first moments form us powerfully. Um, <clears throat> you know, what are we first paying attention to? The world, our life situation, work, text, the day's news, or God? Trust me, those first moments of the day can be powerful moments of formation. Hudson Taylor, that famous missionary to China, implored us, do not have your concert first and then tune your instruments afterwards. Begin the day with the Word of God in prayer and get first of all into harmony with Him. Beginning the day in kneeling prayer before phone, it calibrates my day to be centered around God and not around me or the news or the things that I have to do. It reframes the whole day before launching into the rush of the day's activities. So, first thing is, we say with David in Psalm 5.3, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. Like David, we lift up our eyes to him, Psalm 121, the one from whom truly my help comes. Since we've been raised with Christ, we intentionally begin the day by setting our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, setting our minds on things above, not on earthly things, Colossians 3, 1 to 3. And if you're brave, try leaving your phone alone for the first hour of your morning. Pray, read your Bible, shower, get dressed, eat your breakfast then pick up your phone before heading out of the house. I could say so much more about this. But finally, I want to announce that in order to assist us in this new emphasis on prayer, that we're launching a new initiative. We are launching our own boiler room. So we're asking you to be a part of Twelfth's boiler room. That boiler room is the corporate prayers of God's people. So in a desire to become a more praying people, and to get our boiler room off the ground, we decided to have what we will call a multi-week prayer watch. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus asked his followers to pray and watch with him. So we've created an online calendar to have prayer going on morning to evening, seven days a week for the next several weeks. We want to encourage as many of you as possible to sign up for a weekly one-hour time slot of prayer over those next several weeks. Pick a day and a time that's good for you. Sign up online, maybe the same day and time for the several weeks that it's up, and then put it on your calendar and pray at that time. We've created a page on the church website for this. You'll find it at the top of the page if you simply click on prayer. On that page, you'll find a link to the calendar, an introductory video, as well as some resources to help you out. And please don't be scared off by the thought of praying for an hour. First, we have a very helpful resource that's on that page entitled, How to Spend an Hour in Prayer. It breaks the hour down into chunks. 
I've used this with a number of people. They almost always comment on how quickly the hour went by by using that. But second, even if you can't make an hour, but can only do 30, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of prayer, just please sign up. That's okay. We don't measure our spirituality by how long we can pray, and God doesn't either. He'll be glad to have your presence for whatever amount of time you have. Remember, in all of this, the point isn't to measure our spirituality or our church's spirituality by filling up slots. That's not the point. But we are wanting to make movement to more and more become, as a body, Jesus' dream for His church, which is to become a house of prayer for all nations. So let us, in this unique time, move toward becoming more of a people of prayer, a people who are known first and foremost for their being than they are for their doing, as a people who walk intimately with the Father in prayer. So would you let me pray and join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we hear your call for us to be a house of prayer for all nations. We see all the ways in which you have modeled for us a life of prayer. We long to experience just a portion of the intimacy that you experience daily with the Father. We really do believe that prayer is the power behind all that we do and that our prayers really make a difference. So please forgive us for our prayerlessness. You know that we are but dust and that though the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So please make us the people of 12th Avenue into a people of prayer. And as always, Jesus, we pray this because of you and we pray it for you. And all God's people said, Amen. So be it.